0: Drama on One.
1: Sundays at 8pm. rte.ie forward slash
0: drama on one. Drama on One. You're listening to RTE Radio 1. Tonight, we respectfully dedicate Drama on One to the people of Chrysler, to those living and to those whose lives were so suddenly and so shockingly ended. After a week of unimaginable loss and grief still permeating the whole nation, we offer a balm of love and support to the broken hearts that are mountains in the hills of Donegal. As we approach All Hallows and the Day of the Dead, it is Venice, the city of Venus, goddess of love that best embodies our human wistfulness, our sinking and our soaring hearts as an image of gain and loss. It is to Venice, the floating, gorgeous souk at the core of things, that Dermot Bulger turns to write of his late wife, Bernie. Not in the prose of stage script for which he's famous, but in the private grief of lyric poetry. In almost of winter on Kreslęg, August bannacht day la hanem This is the Venice Suite by Dermot Bulger, a voyage through loss, performed by John Kavanaugh.
1: To her confused terror in those heart-stopping seconds, in the squalid maelstrom of an accident and emergency ward, amidst stretchers and trolleys and policemen guarding drunks, amid paper cones to vomit into, amid spasms and pleas for some doctor to recognize that her throat was killing her, I need her to wake suddenly and find herself on that train at dawn which terminated by accidental miracle at a station in Venice. When she was 19 on a transalpino student rail bus, seeing unlimited European cities in a limited number of days, sleeping on carriages and benches, arrested for bathing topless off remote rocks lit by Catalonian sun and Franco shadow, seeing countries she always dreamt of Encountering strangers who strummed guitars on beaches, forever losing her purse, her rucksack, her limited and yet untethered sense of direction. Careering excitedly down the concourse of some Haltbahnhof, awash with platforms and destinations, and another second to spare to board the right train, shunting out into a landscape now twilight. Distant lights, dark farmland, a coat pillowing her head as she slept, thinking herself traveling in one direction, but instead being swept while she curled in blissful sleep without any dreams of the future, inadvertently closer to that metropolis she had always longed to see. After her panic at being unable to breathe, her frantic death gasp. I needed to wake up slowly to a sense of being encircled by water, to sleepily read the station nameplate, barely able to believe her eyes at being transported to this destination she instinctively recognized, to walk forth from the dawnlit station and to find herself transfixed with her infinite childlike wonder the incandescent mystery of Jack B. Yeats painting, mm-hmm. Grief, 1951. Someday each one of us will stand amid this. Indigo blue shards of grief, a blistering deluge of mustard flecks of rain that seal us within a bewildered state which we desperately need, yet so desperately fail to make any sense of the empty car. I never thought of it in this light before, but I always knew precisely who I was. On interminable late-night drives home from public readings in remote towns, on evenings, sprinting through airport terminals to catch the last flight closing at a distant gate, in supermarkets, texting to ask what we needed, Hoping to surprise you with a gift of chocolate. On afternoons rushing out of television studios, So anxious to beat the traffic and reach home, That you would laugh wiping makeup off my face. On vacating solitary rooms where I sat until sunset, Engrossed in intricate parallel universes of fiction. On daily whiskey runs to console my ailing father, during afternoons, on sidelines when her son kept goal, Evenings in playgrounds, expeditions to hardware stores. In freezing Octobers, when twilight lasted just long enough for golfers on the 18th green to read sloping putts. During whatever roles financial necessity required me to enact, juggling responsibilities, trying to buy us space and time, I always knew My exact identity in my soul was an alterable core. I was the man perpetually rushing home to be with you, hoping your light was still on as you completed a crossword, exhausted or exuberant, drawing me back into my real world. Because that bedside was where my chameleon life ceased and I simply became again the husband you had chosen, with all other personas suspended as I became complete by chatting or spooning into you or just stroking your feet. Tonight, as I turn from Mountjoy Square onto Belvedere Place, slowing at traffic lights intersecting the North Circular Road, I realize for the first time I'm no longer a man driving home to the woman he loves with infuriation, passion, tenderness. I am robbed not only of my future, but of my life's purpose. I feel invisible passing cyclists. Four girls chatting in a car, amazed that none of them glance out, at how they miss the enigma that this vehicle alongside them is driverless. Because, how can I be someone without you to drive home to? The traffic lights change. The motorist finally glances across. The reflection she sees through this windscreen is only as real as light traveling from a burnt-out star that no longer exists. Fingal driving range. From the dark car park where you used to sit, to check all your texts and voice messages, fantasias of white balls trace solitary orbits across a floodlit arc of sky above the rooftop, like silent souls failing to ascend into heaven. Warmth. In this dream, I know that you are dead. Yet you allow me to touch your inner thigh, warm as life, but with a hairline scratch to break the silky expanse of elegant skin. I know my hands must stray no further because they would only encounter emptiness. You have sent this sole segment of yourself as a parting gift. A remembrance of how it felt to be at one with another soul inside an embrace. Two lives shared, one heartbeat, two breaths. You allow me these eighteen inches of skin to touch, so that when I wake in the parched ache of dawn... I will still retain some aftertaste of the warmth that stems from being spooned into a lover's flesh. After a loved one dies, there are duties to complete. The daily rules of tasks used to keep grief at bay. But nights lack itineraries to camouflage the void, where desolation surges in to display sleep where regrets congeal like stalactites on ceilings, where I confront the fact that part of me also died in the pandemonium of a hospital emergency ward, with staff too busy restraining junkies and drunks to diagnose the scurred patient in sodden swimwear dying from an aneurysm on an ambulance stretcher. Some nights I drink enough to ensure I black out, into a pit devoid of dreams about our shared past. Yet at dawn my subconscious recommences its tricks. We meet by chance and amiably chat in some corridor until an inconsequential remark reminds me you are dead and jolts me awake into the nightmare of bereavement. But in this dream you send only 18 inches of yourself ...which I may kiss and serenely caress for these brief seconds... ...totally aware that I am asleep and must soon awaken... ...conscious you have died... ...but I am somehow being allowed the consolation of stroking your skin one final time... ...before I arise to resume being the actor I've become... ...a walking ghost who fulfills contractual commitments... A poet now only attuned to the iambic pentameter of spin dryers and washing machines in our shed, coping with school lunches, iron shirts, book lists, acutely aware of the sons whom you blessed me with, conscious of every twist that our lives did not take, acutely alone except for the after touch of a ghost who came to me in a bed where we once made love. Lines transcribed from Latvian. In the topmost attic berth of this obsolete retreat, where shutters tremble from the gale force gusts that comb back branches amid the darkening earth before battering exposed windows and brickwork i lie awake held captive by that loneliest sound in a room without a soul to put my arms around that which is suddenly precious. Crease marks where you folded hotel receipts, the to-do list pinned onto your bedroom mirror, a moisturizer jar with your fingerprints still visible, old concert ticket stubs, a cherished dinner menu stowed away in the ornate box on the dressing table that served as your childlike pirate treasure chest. A hotel drink spill after viewing a film with friends. Scribbled notes I left with flowers. Birthday cards. A yellow golf ball I unearthed from deep rough, knowing you'd like the smiley face scrawled on it. The casual words with which I coaxed you outside to sunbathe while I blithely cooked our final meal. Watching you relish sunlight on your naked back, A million words and times we exchanged no words. Quarrels over slights eventually resolved by kisses. Companionable silences shared in our back garden. Till howls from unattended dogs forced us indoors. Footprints on a Wexford beach. Cycling Dublin streets. A notebook crammed with tips to improve your golf. Such inconsequential mementos, made consequential. A thousand artifacts to sort through, discard or keep, from a life that has inadvertently become itemized. Each scribbled message, now a historical footnote. The thousand things that I would now wish to say, the thousand things I would now wish to change, The leave-takings to be confronted in every drawer. The unanswerable, the unknown, the unexpressed. The keenest ache of loneliness just after I awake. The fact I knew you intimately for a quarter century. The mystery that perhaps I barely knew you at all. The realization that nothing in life remains permanent. Except for old love notes, stored in a treasure chest. With their unalterable intent, their fixed sentiment, rendered with one stroke into the past tense. Candle. I cannot expect your ghost to be summoned on every occasion on which I light a candle. For 25 years, I was a part of your life, yet I was never the sum total of your life. Your ghost must surface and wane as you will, loitering in corners at unannounced moments when I am utterly oblivious to your presence before you disappear back into previous worlds which exist for me only as polaroid photographs in albums you packed amid multitudinous suitcases on the night we moved into our apartment together that night you grew upset because I arrived on my bike with two plastic bags strung together on the crossbar as if I was not taking seriously our entry into assured shared life I was deadly serious that night and over the years since, both as a carefree young man with too few possessions and a widower besieged by everything we accumulated. Suitcases stacked in attics, boxes squeezed under beds, alcoves crammed with memories I seem unable to cast aside, our shared past catalogued in casually stacked photographs. Each negative made precious, yet also rendered worthless. How much do I hold on to? and what should I discard? You do not live on in suitcases or in my troubled dreams. Even before death, you had grown independent of me, had gathered your strength to rise from your sick bed and become again the person you were before we met. The girl inside the pages of those old photograph albums ...laughing with unidentified figures whom I never knew. Do you live only in photographs? Or exist in some sphere that I lacked the vocabulary or intuition to comprehend? I imagine you in a white dress on a Swiss mountaintop... ...unencumbered by worries. Freer than I ever knew you. But perhaps you still fret over earrings... ...elegantly dressing to spend your days flitting between realms and locations... ...on some journey that occasionally transports you back to this room... ...in the tiny house we once called home. Where a solitary man sits typing beside a lit tea candle. The youth who cycled to you with only two plastic bags tied to his bike. Because, miraculously, he had found you and consequently needed no other possession on earth. So many first times. The first time you depart an airport with no one to fly home to. First time you turn a street corner to find no kitchen light on. First night away you realize you have no one to text, sleep tight. The first time you sense how so many inconsequential moments were momentous for last being shared with someone you loved. Little Exes. Unexpectedly this October afternoon, the telescope turns. I see myself made small again through its objective lens. I am not the widower who recently buried my wife, nor the dutiful son who kept vigil while my father, like a punch-drunk boxer, fought to outfox death. Demented and enraged, hands trapped in cartoon gloves to stop him pulling out the tube to his morphine pump. Today we clear the house where he lived for 60 years. In the bedroom where I was born, my siblings recall how as children their only clues to my birth occurring behind this closed door were anxious instructions to pray. When we open up the attic, we discovered the suitcase my mother packed for her last trip into hospital. A wash bag and talc, clothes she never got to wear home, a purse crammed with prayers, and the folded letter I wrote as a ten-year-old for my sister to bring in to her. I spend one page telling her how good I am being, then cram three pages with scrawled X's, each one to represent a kiss. Last week a granddaughter, she never knew, sang on stage, luminous and radiant, in a band named Little X's for Eyes. For four decades, in a letter, in a purse, in a suitcase, in this attic, these galaxies of X's were the banished eyes of a bewildered child. But unfolding them, I see myself stare out at who I am now, Across this life, I could never have envisaged, as I scrawled, untidy X's for a woman I last saw smiling from a hospital bed. Who sealed them in her purse when nurses shaved her head in preparation for the operation she would never recover from. Praying that one day I might open her purse and be surprised to find my X's return to me. Big X's for kisses. Little excess for eyes. Other people's grief. 1950s Dublin. Two girls sit silently on an open backed bus, winter coats draped over their laps so that the conductor, sauntering downstairs to collect their fares, will not notice the tiny infant's coffin cautiously concealed on her knees. The wooden box, their hands cradle with covert tenderness, en route to Glasnevin Cemetery's unmarked angel's plot. The journey never revealed to future husbands or children. The journey they never dare refer to, even with each other. This ache that might have allowed daughters to decipher them the unutterable weight of that small box carried to their deaths. Phantom pain. Amid a driftwood of dreams in which I'm washed up at dawn to be buffered awake by the shingle toe of receding tides, momentarily you lie beside me, though I know you're not there. In this semi-conscious state where I become acutely aware of the muted ache left by the exit wound of your absence. Like a demobbed conscript who was invariably dragged awake by an ancient bullet wound he is ordinarily too busy to notice. Sustained in a war where each survivor loses part of themselves. Christmas Eve, 2010. Only once did the whole thing make sense. Christmas Eve, forcing open our back door, wedged tight by the piled weight of snow, to step forth into a night silence so austere that it seemed to belong in no living world. Grotesque stalactites of glistening ice hung from drainpipes, guttering, and sills. No traffic noises, no human voices, no birdsong. With every songbird starved or frozen to death, even the dogs next door who tormented you in life, snarling furiously each time you ventured to our shed, had been silenced for days, transplanted elsewhere. Students and migrant workers had vacated their flats in the partitioned fiefdoms of landlords along our street beyond our sleeping suns, where was the next living soul? Holding onto the fence, anxious not to slip amid snow so compacted that my feet could not touch the ground. I carried a basket of clothes through the Antarctic cold, hoping the washing machine in our shed still functioned. I stood beneath overhanging branches of an invasive pine that could barely bear the weight of luminous snowflakes. And as I paused, with each breath as visible as ectoplasm, I could hear my heartbeat. The only sound in the quietude that colonized Dublin. Flights grounded, roads impassable, cars abandoned, passengers sleeping in airport terminals. This incessant freeze made no sense. But for one moment, clutching the fence for support, holding the basket tight, it made absolute sense if I let myself deconstruct each clue. I was Nicole Kidman in the others, too stubborn to realize that six months ago it was I who had actually died, not you. The unprecedented landscape was not real crystallized snow sparking in diamond clusters and wedging car doors inoperable. In wherever the real world existed, you were doing domestic chores in a Christmas made difficult by being the first since my death. Why had I not grasped this simple fact? These nightmare months were figments of my dying brain, a narrative forged to make sense of the onset of death. For one relieved moment, in the eerie glare, radiating from rooftops and lawns, besieged by a press of silence, I truly believed this scene could only be a landscape of the dead. I felt no grief or regret, just a dull curiosity as to what occurs next. Then I wrenched open the shed door, glad the machine still worked, Loading clothes into the cylinder reconciled me to my senses. I was alive, though perished. And our sons needed clean shirts. Cautiously, I edged my way back up through that mundane terrain. Because only your charmed laugh could have rendered it... ...magical. the final three words. If I try to recall everything, everything will be lost. If I try to make sense of it, I will lose my reason. One morning, I shall wake and finally comprehend the futility of applying logic to resolve the illogical. Trying to analytically piece together unverifiable thoughts will only propel me down cul-de-sacs. This approach is too blunt for any true cartography of the inexhaustible inner space of a woman's heart. A quarter century should be sufficient to know somebody. But if I had slipped under your skin as a microorganism, a loosened sliver of bacteria, on the pathologist's blade, I'd have found myself adrift, a jettisoned space probe propelled past elliptical galaxy clusters I never knew existed, towards the dark matter of dreams you could not express. I knew you more intimately than any other human being, but this doesn't allow me to claim to know you outside in. We all withhold parts of ourselves, even from ourselves. Those irrational contradictions we can never articulate. I am lost, sweetheart. A satellite cruising through the debris of your stopped heart. Bereft of gravitational pull or any purpose. Except to keep recording ghost images from the quarter century on spools beneath me with each rotation of the earth from this perspective where inner and outer space merge where i drift within you yet timelessly float through the cosmos so that i find myself gazing down as you lock your bicycle that night you met me at trinity in those tight white jeans We shelter beneath trees, shield one another with kisses in a storm, while lightning ignites a ribcage of skyline above a Wicklow forest. I see our bicycles descend mountain slopes in torrential rain. I watch us wake in a winter dawn, bodies so tightly intertwined that twilight darkens our apartment by the time we finally rise. I see myself run through ice-white streets to wave down a taxi the night your waters broke. I grip your hand and can only kiss your sweating forehead as you cry out, immersed in childbirth. I see laughter and silence, nights of exhaustion, tempers flaring when the pensioner next door blurs her television until dawn. I see your charmed smile at tiny treats, a bar of Turkish delight, a box of colored golf balls left with handwritten instructions to take them out next time some woman was rude to you on the course, so they could be a reminder that three men at home loved you. I see the things we expressed and things we never got time to say. I see our life spin faster Kaleidoscopes of seasons starting to blur into each other, revolving so fast that they cease to make sense. Loose ends, hurts, differences. A thousand reconciling embraces. Can I capture the woman I once thought I knew so intimately, or chart with certainty the meaning of the totality of our lives? All I know is that in my bedside locker, I keep the small envelope. You slipped into my bag once when I was departing on a trip. Containing a photo of you, taken after making love in a Mayo wood. Our bicycles lie nearby. You smile, muffled up in an old scarf. Uncaring how you looked back then. Unaware you looked beautiful. And utterly... Radiantly, yourself, the girl with whom I fell in love. Unburdened by affectation, ecstatic at having miraculously found the soulmate you felt so despondent to be briefly separated from, that you discreetly tucked this envelope into my overnight bag, with three words scrawled in biro in your unblemished hand in case I should ever doubt their enduring truth. I love you. The three words you repeated as I kissed your damp forehead on a hospital trolley. Both of us terrified and terrifyingly unaware you were about to breathe your last. Nothing unresolved matters. I need no grief manuals or holy texts To fathom the inexplicable once I keep faith with the words you left with your photograph for me to find. Lest I should ever despair or need to call upon their simplicity to sustain me lying awake at night. I love you. where we are now. Three years have passed since a day of incessant snow that halted at midnight, when I ventured with our boys through the unchained park gates opposite our house into a white moonscape, untainted by footstep or bird claw. Squadrons of swollen clouds impeded any moon or starlight allowing an eerie luminosity to emanate from the ground. Branches overburdened, benches twice their natural size, each everyday object transformed into a source of light. The ordinary made wondrous, rendered gleaming at midnight. We three raced home to try and lure you from your bed, to share in our witnessing of this miraculous spectacle but you complained you were sleepy, snuggled down. You waved aside each entreaty as we begged you to come. Not tonight, you said, not now, but I promise the next time. None of us could have conceived that when the snow next fell, it would cover your grave for weeks, leaving us shell-shocked, mutely comforting each other in mourning your absent radiance. Two years after your death, I have finally built our extension. With six feet of balustrated decking five steps above the garden, our sons have converted it into an impromptu amphitheater. Tonight, its recessed lights are abetted by the colossal supermoon that occurs each twenty years when its orbit is nearest the Earth. Guitars and a mandolin have been brought out to accompany songs composed by your sons and their friends interspersed with old tunes you would love to hear as lads pass around long-necked foreign beers. We three have known grief. Have carried coffins thrice in two years. But tonight is serenely beautiful. This is where we are. In this moment that cannot be repeated. you love to sit here but if you were in bed, I would need to plead and coax you to get dressed and wander down with you protesting. Not tonight, not now, but I promise the next time. Next time a supermoon occurs, our sons will be 40 and 41. I may be a pensioner of 73, or be long since deceased. I don't know what or where I will be, I am robbed of all certainty. Liberated from trying to predict the future or shield you from it. I only know the single lesson we have been taught by your death. There is no next time. No moment will replicate the wonder of now. I feel you have moved on, and I possess no desire to hold you back. But just this once, don't say... Not tonight, but I promise, the next time. Don't argue or prevaricate, but let your ghost come and sit unobserved on the wooden steps of this moonlit deck that throbs with song. Be with us for the eternity of this supermoon as guitars change hands. See what fine sons you bless the world with What good friends they have summoned around them with music and chilled beer. Two years on, and this is where we are, mourning you deeply still. Yet moving on, as we must move on. Our eldest finished his degree, our youngest immersed in college life, their dad in a battered hat, joining the gathering briefly to sit and share shots of Jägermeister. We don't know where you are, but we are finding ourselves again. I don't know if ghosts exist, or just a welcoming emptiness awaits. All I know is that if you are here, dragged protesting from bed, you would love to hear these songs. These subtle guitar riffs. So whether your ghost sits here or not, I want you to know we are okay. As I call you back to be with us one last time. Then let you depart.
0: That was The Venice Suite by Dermot Bulger, a voyage through loss performed by John Kavanagh. The producer was Aidan Matthews.